I'm Andrew McAllister, the host of The Next Big Thing. Today we're chatting with Trung Pham, who's the founder and CEO of Axis. Axis, in simple terms, is a smart shades company. Uh, we designed and developed a retrofit device that allows you to motorize and automate your existing window shades. And what it actually is, is a consumer electronic device you mount on the window frame and you loop your existing chains or cords through our device and you're able to automate its control. Once it's installed, you can control your shades with our mobile app where you can integrate it with the wider, wider smart home ecosystems in the market, including Samsung SmartThings, uh, the Alexa Plus, Control 4, and we're working on a wide variety of other integrations. So you've not always been involved with the, the kind of creation and manufacturing of these kind of smart products, but you have been involved in technology. Like, how did your career kind of start off? Um, great question. So um, I actually graduated uh, in 09 during the market crash, um, the subprime mortgage crash in the States. And uh, I actually don't have an engineer background. Uh, I graduated studying finance. And if and anyone kind of went through that experience, when you graduate in 09 with a background in finance, it's going to be very, very hard to get a job. Um, you know, they were firing people left, right, and center in, um, in the investment banking world. Wall Street was kind of crazy back then. Uh, so it was very tough to get a job. I took some time off, uh, did my CFA for fun, uh, went to Nicaragua, built a school. Uh, was really enjoying life because uh, you just graduated and you really had nothing to do because of the whole crisis that's going on. But um, this is when, um, this is before the iPhone actually was launched, when BlackBerry was still the dominant platform. And um, you know, smart home adoption was picking up uh, primarily with the, with the, um, the BlackBerry. Um, and I was approached by a friend that was an engineer to start a uh, potentially start a startup or work on a startup. And we you know, brainstormed a bunch of ideas. And during this time, I had a lot of friends in the nightlife entertainment space, either promoters uh, in uh, concerts or nightclubs. And they always came up to me with the, uh, these, these challenges, these problems with managing their clients and managing their teams and ticket sales. Everything was back then hard tickets. And this is way before the event rights of the world. So we, uh, we essentially created a um, lightweight solution, a web and BlackBerry platform that allowed the nightclub and concert promoters to sell tickets online, um, sell tickets through their teams and manage where the tickets were coming from so they could provide commission to their team members. Everything was digital, um, you know, sell bottle service guests, everything online. And we created the BlackBerry and um, a web app for that. So this was back in 2010, 11, 12, developed the product, scaled it, grew it up, closed a bunch of clients in Toronto, um, and towards the end of the, the life of the company, um, the iPhone came out and it really kind of destroyed BlackBerry. Uh, that's how I could really say it. Um, the iPhone came out and everyone's coming with iPhone apps. We didn't have one. We stuck with BlackBerry. We made, we made the wrong bet on BlackBerry back then. But um, all these iPhone solutions came out and we couldn't compete. So we decided to merge with an iPhone first solution that was doing something very similar. Uh, we crossed databases, we shared clients, and um, we essentially did a, a revenue share of, the, of the, the revenues that were coming in since we already had uh, a huge amount of clients, but they had a, the new technology that everyone was hopping on. So that was kind of um, my, early, my early experiences with uh, technology and startups. But that experience actually led me to uh, a real passion for startups and entrepreneurship in general. Um, I can safely say I never had a corporate job in my life. 
<laughs> so, I mean, that, that's a, a great first step into technology, but still a massive leap from, you know, creating kind of a BlackBerry product for helping kind of nightlife and selling tickets to smart blinds. Like, what was the inspiration to kind of go in that kind of new direction? Yeah, so um, this was actually, again, another personal experience, but um, uh, hardware wasn't something I really understood, but um, I understood business and finance and, and looking at opportunities. So what ended up happening was a very personal experience. Um, I moved into a condo in downtown Toronto. And um, when I moved in back in 2014, um, I didn't really have uh, an unlimited budget. Um, I really like design. I bought you know new furniture, new couch, new TV, but didn't have the budget for uh, motorized shades, even though I wanted motorized shades. It was a, I was kind of a gadget freak back then. Um, so I opted for just for you know regular manual shades, core controlled. And then a couple months later, when the summer rolled around, um, I, I noticed it was really hot and sunny. So I went back to the same designer and I said, hey, um, you know, I bought these shades from you a couple, year, a couple months ago. Um, can you motorize them for me? And that's when I actually learned that you can't motorize and automate your shades once they've been installed. You actually have to replace them with uh, brand new motorized shades that have the motors built in. And I thought that was silly. I'm like, what do you mean? Isn't there some kind of gadget I could just buy in and uh, retrofit on the chains or cords? And all it does is it's, it's mimic, mimicking me controlling the, the chains or cords. And um, turns out there wasn't a solution like that. Uh, I didn't believe them. I went home, Googled it. And it turns out they were right. So um, I saw this massive opportunity where I'm like, if I'm experiencing this, maybe other people are. Um, how big is the, is the market for motorized shades? I, I came. I, I kind of look at looked at it as an opportunity more than a um, a, a just a simple problem problem solution, uh, even though that that was what it was. Um, but I approached the business and starting the business from a, um, an opportunity perspective and seeing that, you know, the, the, the existing players of the market are large billion dollar companies selling motorized shades. So, um, you know, right off the bat, the, the, the comps in the market kind of proved that there was definitely a big market for it. And looking at the market itself, 95% of the shades are manual. So huge opportunity to um, go direct to consumer, under, underprice the existing companies in the market and, um, and really create a, a strong brand for smart shades. So Axis has really leveraged the crowdfunding idea. I think it was with Indiegogo you mentioned. How did that help get the business off the ground right at the early stages? So Indiegogo was really used as um, customer validation and feedback. Um, I think back then everyone was using Indiegogo. Um, a lot of uh, the crowdfunding campaigns, um, it was tough for them to deliver. Um, we didn't want to run through that mistake. So we actually had a working prototype that was going through production. Uh, when we went through the campaign so we had pretty firm timelines of what we could expect to ship and we we essentially used it to validate well what's a um what's a price point that we could charge where we could be profitable and what features customers wanted to see and it was there at the end of the day real demand or is this kind of a um a, a one-shot wonder um and uh i think i believe we raised about 120,000 us on indiegogo um it was during the worst months. It was during the, the holiday season where not a lot of activity was happening. You go, go, people were spending a lot of money on holiday gifts, uh, but we were still we still managed to pull in 120,000 and really helped us validate the market. But um, not only that, Indiegogo actually provided a lot of credibility, a lot of PR, where I could use that as a traction point and raise um, our seed round. So you touched on a point there talking about you already had a, a prototype to show the Indiegogo campaign. I think that's what a lot of kind of hardware founders and people interested in hardware companies, you know, don't have a lot of exposure to. Like, 
what is the process you guys used for you know creating the initial prototypes and getting it to manufacturing on the initial step and how has that evolved over time as the company has grown um so great question um i, I think um the beginning stages is the longest so uh when we started when we started the idea for the access gear this is early 2015 right right in january actually and we spent a whole year um, developing prototypes and um on the engineer side we had to we had to actually make the product work so we had to design all these prototypes that worked uh, which we call works like prototypes and then once you have the prototype working you have to be able to re-engineer it to fit inside a form factor um, that also had to be prototyped so it looks like prototypes you had prototypes that actually functioned but looked like garbage and then you have prototypes that look really beautiful but didn't work at all um, and you had to combine those two and obviously, they had different um, motivations for each one. On the engineering side, you obviously had to make the device work. And on the design side, you had to make a device that looked beautiful that customers would buy. So, you know, the first 12 months was just um, coming up with both aspects and merging them together. Uh, and uh, that was 2015. 2016, we went through actual production. This is, this is still prototyping because you're still modifying the, the, the hardware and the industrial design to be able to be manufactured at the factory. And that was 2016. Uh, 2017, 18, and, and as of today, every time we do a prototype or an iteration, uh, we're really just testing bits and pieces of components, uh, different designs of electronics, um, not really changing the form factor much. A lot of it is uh, prototyping and testing the vendors, suppliers, and components, and make sure they work within the same form factor. Um, so it's much easier once you have the first few batches of production in market. Mm -hmm. So you've obviously had quite a lot of experience with the kind of prototype and manufacturing process now. Is there anything that you've learned now that you kind of wish you knew right back in those early days in 2015? Oh man, <laughs> that's, a, that's definitely a loaded question. There's, uh, there's a lot of things I wish I could have done <laughs> way back then. But um, you know, um, Murphy's Law, what can go wrong, will go wrong. I think that's Murphy's Law at least. Um, um, but yeah, there's a lot of things that can go wrong during, during production and you, re you really, really have to be attentive. I think, um, you know, we did it right. Every time we did a production, we had to fly to China. We couldn't trust uh, the factory, even though they were a tier one factory, to make sure everything ran smooth. We had to implement our own QCs and QC checks in place. Um, one thing I did really learn was if you make a modification and you do a prototype in North America, make sure the factory does it in China. Because the same, the same uh, components that we used in Toronto or in, in North America, it might be slightly different than the ones they procure in China, and that can cause a huge difference in quality. So definitely have a factory prototype, a few samples, make sure it works before you go to mass production. That was one of the key things I would highly recommend. So you make one small change in a component, make sure the factory does it on their end and who they procure from their, their vendors and suppliers. Um, another thing is you have to budget a lot more time uh, factories will give you three to five months lead times, you know, budget an extra two, three months buffer. And um, also account for when they actually go on uh, vacation because they have these two periods during the year. I think um, Chinese New Year's is one of them. And then they have one in I believe, October called Golden Week where they just shut down and uh, nothing gets done leading up to it and, and coming out of it. So you mentioned you know, what can go wrong will go wrong, which I think is something every hardware founder can relate to. What have been the biggest challenges of the business? Now, it could be right at the start when you're just prototyping things, or it could even be things that are happening right now, but what have been the biggest hurdles you've had to get over? So I, I think um, with hardware, um, 
this is going to be you know, advice every, every hardware company gives you, but definitely have enough capital in the bank. A lot of, uh, one of the primary reasons startup fails is that you don't have enough capital in the bank. So make sure you're continually raising, continually meeting investors. Um, but other than that, because that's a very you know, well-known uh, piece of advice. Um, but, but I think you really have to have strong processes and really recruit and build a team that really understands production. If you're trying to do it for the first time and just getting general advice from people, don't do that. Hire someone that has done production in China, specifically in China, uh, that knows how to navigate China themselves. Uh, and you know, fortunately enough, our, our chief design officer did uh, production in China and we leveraged off all our, um, all our hardware companies that uh, manufactured in China. They introduced us to their factories. Um, so also, also get all those, um, those warm instructions from them. But definitely start building a team in China themselves rather than trying to do it yourself. So one of the things we hear a lot from hardware companies is just how expensive it is. And this is something you referenced when we were chatting before the call. Like, what was your initial estimate on how much you thought it would take to get a product to market and you know how long it would take and how much and how long did it actually take you? Um, I, man, um, on the hardware side, it took twice as long and twice as much. So that, that famous saying, you know, always you know, always budget for twice as long, twice as much. That is actually very true. I think um, we took just under twice as long and just under twice as much. Um, I believe, um, you know, our initial round was just half a million. And we needed another half a million to get us to market. Indiegogo helped with that and then helped us raise our seed round. And then safety on the inventory side, we raised about 2 million in inventory financing. Uh, definitely need a lot more than that. Um, and it, it with inventory is tricky because it's all about cash flow. You're you're paying for the product up front, but you don't you don't get the cash flow back until you start selling the product. So that's where the, the fine balance has to come in, and you, you should really have someone in your team that understands cash flow and um, cash flow management on that side. But um, you know, to answer your question, twice as much and twice as long, definitely for the product, <laughs> and even for the um, the software side of things. Um, you know, we thought you know you create this product, we could start integrating with all these platforms. Uh, little did we know that you know you're relying on third parties like um, these big corporations that have their own timelines and agendas, and they don't give you the time of day for um, certification and integration. So, you know, when we first launched, we had a prototype that worked, but it worked on a standalone basis, and we were always marketing the ability to to integrate with this platform and that platform, and we couldn't really do it off the bat because the uh, the third parties were taking their sweet ass times. So the two things you're really bringing up there was the, the challenges of financing and the challenges of kind of production and hiring around production in China. I mean, those are not, those are major challenges. How did you go around solving those specifically? So um, because we're a direct-to-consumer B2C company, we don't qualify for traditional uh, purchase order financing. And it's very tough to go to a bank or even any private lender and say, hey, I need money for inventory. They want to see a track record. Um, so I think creatively during 2016, 17, what we did um, online, very, very simple. I, I see a lot of startups doing this, but they would um, start selling in batches and you could really only target the early adopters. So you would say, I have you know, 500 units at this price point. Here's a discount. Buy now. You get the money up front, but you will have to wait three, six, nine months for delivery. And we kept on doing that for 2016, early 2017. But again, that's not sustainable because you know, you're doing pre-orders on your website for a good month or two. You get that money, you place your purchase order with your factory. It takes some three to five months for production and then, then you ship it to your, your customers. So that's not a scalable or sustainable business model. You can do that to prove traction, but once you do that to prove traction, start raising money. 
uh, we did that. Um, we proved a lot of traction by doing that. Uh, and that's what allowed us to raise um, our, our angel round as well as our uh, venture debt round for inventory financing. Um, after that stage, um, and you prove some more traction and you have data points from Shopify and whatnot, um, you can start looking to um, these interesting funders out there. So there's, um, there's a, a, a technology bank called ClearBank and they'll fund up to a certain amount um, based on your um, cost of capital or, or, or your customer acquisition cost. Um, PayPal Capital is another one that just popped up. Shopify Capital is another one. And these are all kind of like, um, you know, they're investing in your ability to uh, market the product and earn three times your marketing spend. So they'll give you some initial boost for marketing and growing sales that way. On the inventory side, uh, besides venture debt and private lending, um, you know, companies such as yourselves, KickPay, very creative. You know, it makes sense. The inventory is secured. Um, you know, they have claim over the inventory. They have full, full visibility to your sales and your inventory levels. And every time you ship a unit, um, it's kind of like buying on consignment. Like you, you buy the product from them and then you sell it to your end consumer. So these interesting new businesses and business models are popping up for BTC companies. And I think a lot of these uh, startups should take advantage of them. This is a good time to give some more detail on how KickPay helped Axis with their financing challenges. KickPay paid Axis manufacturer for the upfront cost of the inventory, then only got paid back when units were shipped to customers. This meant Axis could put in larger orders to their manufacturer so they didn't go out of stock during high sales periods like Prime Day or Cyber Monday. Now back to the interview. And how do you think is the best way for a startup who perhaps are doing their essentially their first attempt to produce a product in China, how should they go about kind of hiring and getting a team in place to really ease that flow of getting something produced in China? Um, so this is, a, this is not just China or a production in China, but this, I think this is, applies to hardware teams and startups in general, but you really have to sell the vision of the product and your, your team members have to really believe in it. Um, if they're just there to earn you know, 150K a year or market salary, they may not be the best fit. Uh, you really want guys that have skin in the game that are willing to make sacrifices for you, um, that can work on a lower salary because they believe in the product division, they'll take the equity, that can um, fly to China next week because there's an emergency. A lot of team members can't do that because um, commitments at home. If they're married to have children, some of them can't do that. So you really have to have those motivated team members that have that flexibility that can do that. And at the same time, that have experience in China. Um, the experience in China and the connections to China and how to navigate China, it's a, China's another world. And so you really need to have someone in your team or a, a very strong advisor that can introduce you to people in China that can help you navigate China itself. So you guys are obviously very focused in the smart home market. And that's a, you know, it's a large growing market. How do you see that evolving over time in the next, say, two to five years? So I think. Um, Voice is going to be the dominant um, platform or method of control of the home in the next few years. Um, and obviously, that's going to be Amazon Alexa and Google Home. And uh, Apple might you know, enter the race a little later, but definitely Google and Amazon have the, the strain on the market. And e even when you're thinking about the smart home, a lot of customers already have smart home platforms like Control4 and Samsung SmartThings. Um, but in the future, to control these devices, they're going to be adding a Google Home or Amazon Alexa. So for all the existing smart home owners, they're just going to add a voice speaker and you, you're going to have to be able to work with it. You're going to have, you're going to have to be able to create routines that 
allow the speaker to control you know, our smart shades or whatnot. Um, for those that don't have a smart home platform, Google Home and Amazon Alexa will be that platform. And uh, you know, they're, they're already making um, initiatives in that direction. Alexa launched a, a Zigbee uh, smart home hub, their own version, in order to connect with other Zigbee devices, which is what we use. And Google, um, rumor has it, is that they're going to be opening up uh, their Bluetooth platform to be able to speak to other smart home devices that use Bluetooth. Those are kind of the two schools of thought when it comes to uh, the smart home. You have Alexa with Zigbee and even uh, smart things with Zigbee. And you have Google with Bluetooth. And I believe Apple is even going to go towards the Bluetooth direction. But all of them are going to have a, a voice element built into them. We've talked a lot about, you know, how you produce these products and kind of what platforms and what voice now you have to integrate with them. Let's talk about actually getting users to buy the product now. Like what's been your biggest success channel for customer acquisition? Um, definitely Facebook and Instagram. Um, unless you get really good PR um, from like the TechCrunch, the Engadgets of the world. Um, and a lot of them don't really do PR until you prove themselves now. Um, so definitely Facebook and Instagram. And it's because Facebook and Instagram are very, are very much platforms where people go and discover new content and discover new products. Mm -hmm. Google's not good initially because Google is more driven by intent. People on Google, on, go on Google and search for products that they want to learn more about versus Facebook and Instagram is like, I see an image of a new product and you get intrigued by the product. So the more you see the product, the more you're intrigued you get, the more you're gonna, likely you're going to click the, the, the ad and go to your website. So definitely um, at the early stages for a new category of product, Facebook and Instagram. So Facebook and Instagram for discovery, the Google and intent search more for education, you think? In, uh, Google might be better if you're, if you're one of those products that is better than an existing category in the market, where you're, you're creating a better mousetrap, for example, or a more affordable mousetrap. Uh, with us, because we're creating a new category, you really have to spend time um, educating consumers on the product and having them discover and experience the product. So talk to me about numbers. Like, what sort of conversion are you actually seeing in your most success with Facebook and Instagram ads? Um, it, it varies, and it varies on industry and price points. So the higher your price point, the lower your conversion rates. That's you know, basic knowledge. Um, when you run sales or you lower your price points, you're going to get a lot more conversions. Uh, the click-through rates are very, um, very similar across the board, uh, depending on what your ad is saying. Um, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I do know uh, conversion rates for something um, of our product within our price point is around the 1%. Have you had any customer acquisition channels that were just a complete failure did not work yeah um influencer actually influencer marketing we thought it was gonna be a good channel uh for for us um little did we know that it's completely uh, a failure mainly because um influencers are great on targeting you know more lifestyle businesses where you're talking about fashion beauty brands things of that nature um disposables um but not really consumer electronics i think um instead of influencers on Instagram and, and whatnot, um, targeting people to do YouTube reviews would have been a, a lot more effective um, and reviews in general, because with the consumer electronics, people want to know how the product works, how it integrates with their products. Um, it's more of a, um, a review driven business rather than uh, a fashion item where I see, the, I see the fashion items, I can envision how it's going to look on me, then I buy it. So with any modern it could be hardware it could be a software business but really anything that's kind of considered a startup now we're seeing a trend of companies leveraging third parties to kind of outsource uh, activities and tasks to do that like what sort of tools does access use to keep the business running and how do you use those tools so um 
we have a set of, uh, I guess, standard tools that we use for all our activities on a daily basis and some that specific teams use. But company-wise, everyone uses Slack. Slack's amazing. It's um, great for startups. It essentially eliminates emails within team members unless you're also emailing a third party. But Slack's great. You create your own channels, do private chats, uh, direct messages. Um, it prevents a lot of interruptions. If you're, you know, if you're plugged in, speakers on, working away, coding hard, you don't want to be disrupting uh, someone all the time. Just Slack them and they respond and that means they're free. So Slack's been great. It's actually been a, a game changer communication-wise. Um, I also use Google Drive, and Google Drive is primarily just for you know storing information in the cloud. Um, similar to um, Slack, you create different uh, teams and folders with different team members have access to different uh, files. Asana is what we use for task management and project management. And Asana has been great. We've been using it since they first launched, but uh, their improvements over the last few, few years have been great. They launched a uh, Gantt chart um, feature. They have um, you know more tags. Uh, it's a lot more user-friendly, so uh, Asana is what I use for all my task management and projects. And then um, myself, as a company, I use something called collage.co, and that's more for uh, employee onboarding, um, time off policy, vacation policy, performance reviews, uh, more of a, a, um, a management tool. And obviously, different teams have uh, different tools. Um, our customer support team obviously uses Zendesk, and the engineer team, team obviously uses Jira. So let's look forward now. What is next for the business? What are the things you're trying to accomplish in the next one, two years? So um, running in, in media, we actually just launched the ability to sell international. And uh, this, was, um, this was possible because our fulfillment center, uh, Shipmunk, um, has an integration partnership with something called Passport. And what that allows a customer to do is go to your website, um, check out, see the actual custom fees and shipping fees up front pay for them up front and uh, there's no um, mystery on, you know, when they actually get the product that they have to pay any customs or shipping fees. Everything's baked into the price, which is great. And, um, you know, shipment ship handles that distribution. So uh, we just launched internationally. We're going to be testing that. Um, we're also waiting for Shopify to launch their multi-currency uh, feature that allows customers to see the, the price of the product in their own currency rather than U.S. dollars. And we're going to be expecting a boost conversion space on that as well. So, um, so that's initially what we're doing online. Offline, um, I think you know, we're at the stage where uh, we're moving beyond the early adopters and we want to start attack, uh, attacking the uh, early majority. And to do that, we're going to be tapping into a um, service called Beta, B8TA. And they're similar to a pop-up a pop shop um, concept where um, the products are displayed, demoed, and customers could walk through and experience different consumer electronics or products or devices. Um, but they would still buy online. So you'd have a tablet there, customers buy online. Uh, the, the great thing about this is that it allows you to test your retail concept when you're ready to go retail, like at Best Buy or Lowe's, um, how the display is, how customers interact with your product. Um, at the same time, it's gonna drive conversions and, and sales because you're gonna get a lot of foot traffic that walk through these pop-up shops that are found in malls and, and high traffic areas. So uh, again, it's, it's similar to the, the initial idea of uh, using Facebook and Instagram to uh, to help uh, customers discover your product, Beta will do the same thing on the offline retail world. You mentioned earlier one of the biggest learnings you had when you were starting the business was around prototyping and having someone in China. Is there anything else you can kind of learn along the way um, that you kind of wish you knew at the start? It could be specifically about prototyping or just starting a business in general. Um, I, I think the biggest thing, especially with hardware, is um, the capital is very important because. 
even though you're going to budget for you know specific costs for manufacturing and you might add a 20-30% buffer, um, because things take long, um, you have to budget in the actual additional overhead that that's going to cost because your team members have to be paid. If there's a three-month delay, that means delay that means a three-month uh, in additional salaries you have to pay for. So the the biggest thing um, with China manufacturing and production is these delays cost in direct money in terms of um, you know staying in China longer, um, overhead, um, and and additional resources with production and, and hard costs with the the products themselves. So definitely account for those. Um, that would be my biggest uh, piece of advice when you're dealing with China and, and the, the potential delays. And that's you know during the fifth, first initial production batches. Once you get a few, you know we're at, we're at our sixth production batch. Once you get a feel for it, um, it's much easier to predict. And, and what do you feel has been your, I mean, VCs mentioned this phrase a lot when you're raising money, but what is Axe's unfair advantage in the market? Um, so I, I think for us, it's, um, and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a lot earlier, um, to pitch, uh, to say this, but it's, it's really about building that brand. I, I think um, a brand is defensible in itself if you, if you can build that brand. And the focus at the very early stages is to build that brand. And like when you think of uh, vacuum cleaners, you're gonna think of Dyson. When you think of thermostats, you might think of Nest or Ecobee. When, when you think of doorbells, you're gonna think of Ring. And you really have to own that word or that, or that concept in the consumer's mind. And that's gonna help you build a sense of defensibility. You have those traditional methods like patents and trademarks and whatnot um, that can help you to some extent, but helping you build that brand can actually influence a, a buyer's decision. So, you know, I could buy a more affordable vacuum cleaner, but I'm going to buy Dyson. It's twice as more expensive, but it's a reliable brand. It's, it's a great brand that people trust. So um, for us, our vision and our goal in the long run is to build that brand that customers can trust. They'll pay that premium price point, but they'll know that when they buy our product, it's going to work. Um, with no issues. Now, I think I know exactly how you're going to answer the, the, the next question here, but what advice would you give to either people thinking about starting a hardware business or in the very initial stages of getting, getting it up and running? Oh, man, it goes back to the funding. Just make sure you have a good financing plan in place. And it's not just you know, trying to raise a bunch of venture capital for... Um, for building your product inventory, I think it has to be very smart because uh, VCs will also want to see this. They, they want to see that, okay, you know, you're raising $5 million in VC funding, but you also have a plan to raise uh, debt for inventory or um, come up with a, a, a very creative method to, to delay payments to your factory so you could get the inventory on, on consignment. They're going to want to see some type of advantage on that side where you know, they don't want to be financing inventory at, at the end of the day. So make sure you have a good financing plan where you go to angels and say, hey, I'm raising... $2 million in equity. Um, it's going to get us up to a prototype to this level, and then we're going to be able to leverage um, X, Y, and Z company to be able to fund our inventory. Thanks for listening to The Next Big Thing. I'm Andrew McAllister, and we've been speaking with Trung Pham, the CEO of Axis. If you'd like to get the transcripts of the show and find out more about Axis, you can head to blog.kickpay.com. That's B L O G dot k i c k p a y dot com. Mm-hmm.